Manji at 150 Podcast. I'm Tristan Gurno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Lublin, Associate Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of History at Wayne State University. Dr. Lublin is the author of Reforming Japan, the Women's Christian Temperance Union in the Meiji Period, published by the University of British Columbia Press in 2010. Dr. Lublin, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate. In your book, Reforming Japan, you talk about the reform activities of Protestant women, particularly in the WCTU. What are some of the reform activities that these women are undertaking during the Meiji period? So the WCTU was established first in Japan in Tokyo in 1886. And it was an offshoot of an American organization that was created in Ohio in 1873 and then went global or national, international rather, in the early 1880s. The first round-the-world missionary visited Japan for a couple of months in 1886, and her visit spawned then this, the creation of this first branch in Tokyo uh, in December of 1886. And the organization, when it was originally created, there was a serious discussion and disagreement among founding members about what exactly the, the society should do. So the WCTU in the United States started out as a temperance organization, and that's where the T of WCTU comes from, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. The WCTU in the United States subsequently picked up a range of different reform activities. It moved much beyond temperance, but the WCTU has long been associated with that, and some in Japan saw it as a single-issue organization. Uh, For the founding members of the WCTU, Uh, There were some who were more interested in focusing on temperance, and that was particularly true of the first president of the organization, a woman by the name of Yajima Kajiko, who herself had been uh, a victim of drunken spousal abuse um, in in Kyushu before she uh, fled from her husband and then moved solo uh, to Tokyo. So she herself, based on personal experience, was particularly committed to temperance as a cause for the society. Other members, um, particularly Sasaki Toyoju, were much more interested in a broader uh, reform agenda. Uh, They considered all sorts of customs within Japan as uh, pertaining to women, those that had put women as second-class citizens, those that had silenced women, uh, particularly this idea that, um, well, I think in a Western context, that women should be seen but not heard, uh, but that men should be respected and, and women not. Uh, practices such as licensed prostitution, concubinage, even such things as women's shaving of their eyebrows and blackening of their teeth, which uh, set them apart uh, as customs that were diminishing of women and preventing Japan from moving forward as an equal member of the international community. And that side of the membership won out in 1886. And so from the get-go, the WCTU had a very broad-ranging agenda of reform issues. And the fact that the WCTU, the founding members, decided to name the organization not with temperance in the title, so this was not a kinshukai, a temperance society, but they opted for the characters for kyofu, or kyofukai. Kyofu literally means moral or social reform. So they set themselves off from the beginning 
as an organization that had a very broad kind of agenda. And that agenda did morph over the years. Uh, when I say morph, anti-prostitution activism, uh, petitions to have the civil and criminal codes revised so that uh, men were also liable for adulterous behavior, uh, efforts to eliminate any kind of legal status or standing of concubines and their children, um, temperance considered to be something uh, that was part of the moral reform campaign, but not nearly as as important or as as first in the pecking order as in the United States. Those were all objectives of the WCTU from 1886. But as the society grew over time into a national organization, into an organization that had branches around the country, into an organization that had both adult branches and youth branches, uh, also as Japan's position in the world changed, as social conditions and economic conditions in, in Japan changed, the organization took up a, uh, an expanding array of issues. Now, and one such example, after the Ashio Copper Mine pollution incident, um, when the Ashio Copper Mine northwest or so of, of Tokyo resulted in its, its development, modernization resulted in uh, massive environmental pollution. Uh, within the Kanto Plain, the WCT became very active in trying to provide job training and skill training for farming women who were impacted so that they could maintain some sort of uh, means of living without having to resort to prostitution. Uh, so that was just one example of a way in which that the WCT's broader objective of helping women, elevated women, elevating women, uh, and creating a more moral society, at least moral as the, the determined it to be, uh, was part of this expanding kind of agenda. Another example is the outreach of the WCTU during the Russo-Japanese War, and that's something that I talked about uh, at some length in my book on the WCTU. Members put together their, their most famous of campaigns uh, in relation to war was a campaign to provide comfort bags to soldiers and sailors, and this was something that they had picked up from women's groups uh, who were active during the American Civil War. Uh, American women had put together these comfort bags providing uh, needles and thread and buttons, pencils and notepads, cards, little uh, notes of encouragement, uh, postcards, little bits of food, whatnot. The WCTU launched a massive campaign to produce and then have distributed some 60,000 comfort bags during the Russo-Japanese War. And this was an opportunity for the WCTU and for members to stake a claim to being patriotic citizens contributing to the war effort, but it was also an opportunity for WCTU women to push forth their own version of what constituted good citizenship. And in this case, for them, what constituted good citizenship was not having cigarettes or pictures of lewd women in these comfort bags themselves, but uh, morally uplifting kinds of things. So sometimes there were biblical texts that were included, and they, they substituted cigarettes, uh, or umeboshi, rather, the pickled plums for cigarettes, uh, things of that sort. So you had, over the course of the Meiji period, again, this wide-ranging kind of agenda with the underwriting or undergirding objective remaining essentially the same of empowering women. On that note, you also talk about how, how your research reflects on changing state citizen ties. Yes. So could you, could you elaborate on, on how these women's groups, through these moral suasion campaigns and some of the other campaigns that they're undertaking, are in fact pushing the state? 
Well, one of the ways that WC did, did this is a lot of the campaigns involved, not the, the Comfort Bag campaign, although the WC2 did end up getting mm-hmm. official uh, acknowledgement of that campaign to the point that the bags themselves were shipped by the military without the WCTU incurring any kind of expense. And afterwards, the WCTU uh, did receive some commendation from the emperor uh, and empress, mostly the, the empress. But one of the ways in which the WCTU operated was members, consciously or not, and you know, it's hard to go back since I can't interview any of these women, uh, but I think to some extent consciously, they saw themselves as in a position and rightfully in a position to influence government action to shape the ways in which the government sought to construct ideas about morality, ideas about citizenship. And so for many of the campaigns, and this is particularly true of those with petitions, um, which involve not just the writing of petitions, the gaining of signatures for petitions, but then also their submission to uh, local government officials, more often to uh, officials within the Meiji government, uh, trying to convince these, these public officials to pass laws, to adopt government policies that would dictate behavior for the masses, in essence, for for all of Japanese. I think that you had talked to Marnie Anderson for a bit, and she's done a lot of work on women's activism, particularly during the movement for freedom and popular rights. And she's also talked in some ways, as have others, about the ways in which the state tried to restrict women's political activism. Uh, with bans on their participation in political organizations, attendance at political meetings, initially an attempt to keep women out of the gallery of the national diet. The WCTU played around, I would say, with those restrictions and almost turned them on ahead. Uh, as I've argued in my book, submitting petitions, even signing a petition, is in itself a political act. And so the WCTU circumvented or worked around, found these loopholes, in the government's efforts to dictate women's activism and citizenship and and played then what, or took advantage of what opportunities they actually had to tell the state, these are the kinds of policies that should be enacted. These are the kinds of laws that should be enacted. Uh, And so they, they constructed for themselves a definition of citizenship and tried to assert that. And they did so very much in relation to the state, but also in relation to other Japanese because their ideas about what constituted moral behavior were more behavior both in a public sphere as well as as in a, a private sphere. Another of the activities is the campaigns against tobacco, and I understand that's where your new direction is saying. So, so what is going on with tobacco, and why is it tobacco in particular that becomes the target of many of these campaigns? So for the WCTU, it was a sub-target, or I would say it was, uh, it was not a principal focus, though I've jumped off on the little bit of research I did with respect to the WCTU for the, for the next project. Uh, because I found that there's just a plethora of information. But in, in relation to the WCTU, this really picked up around the turn of the century. Uh, and it did in part because a resident world WCTU missionary uh, in Japan uh, in the late 1890s brought with her an agenda, one of her, her objectives was to expand the WCTU's outreach among youth. And she was very big in the creation of these youth branches. 
uh, young women's uh, Christian temperance unions. Uh, and those branches not only organized young women into moral reform uh, groups themselves and had them campaign, but this was part of a larger um, addition or one part of an addition or expansion of the agenda to look specifically at youth, both uh, male and female. And this was a time when uh, Japanese society and the government itself were both targeting uh, youth as a distinct category of, of Japanese uh, and much more conscious of the need to so form uh, these young people into loyal patriotic citizens. Uh, and the WCTU's picking up on youth as a target market, so to speak, was very much in line with that larger national uh, attention that was shifting. Uh, for the WCTU, it worked out quite well because their campaigns to uh, limit smoking as well as drinking among youth found resonance among even the most conservative of diet members who bought into, or at least uh, agreed with the WCTU's rhetoric that a non-drinking, non-smoking youth population had great benefits for Japan, both in terms of its military prowess and for its uh, economic expansion. Um, with the WCTU, it itself did not specifically introduce a bill into the national diet to abolish drinking and smoking by youth. That was uh, done by a gentleman by the name of Nemoto Sho, who was almost from the get-go a supportive uh, figure for the WCTU, a, a fellow Christian. In 1899, he submitted a bill to ban uh, smoking by anyone under the age of 20 in astounding with astounding speed that was passed and went into effect in Japan uh, the following spring. So it just took over about two and a half months for the diet to approve this bill to uh, restrict or ban smoking by young people under the age of 20. Uh, and again, by playing to one of, the, one of the arguments I make in the book is that some of the success that the WCTU specifically, but also Christian moral reformers more broadly had during the Meiji period uh, was that they couched their arguments in this language of reform was for the benefit of the nation. Uh, moral reform, whether it was the elimination of prostitution or concubinage or youth drinking or youth smoking. Smoking was the only one that the government banned during the, uh, the Meiji period, but that these kinds of reforms would strengthen the national polity and earn for Japan greater respect from the international community. And those kinds of arguments, I would say the, the reformers themselves definitely believed in, but as I argue in my book, they also recognized that those kinds of arguments would have greater sway, both within government circles and then civilian circles, if they had simply couched all of their calls for reform using uh, biblical text, uh, quotations from the Bible and whatnot, they wouldn't have found nearly the same kind of reception, positive reception, uh, that they did. And, and as you mentioned in the book, I mean, one reason for this, of course, is that there isn't as many Christians in Japan as, as there was in the U.S., where those kinds of campaigns would actually gain some resonance. Exactly. Though one thing to note is that even though the percentage of uh, practicing or self-identifying Christians during the Meiji period was minuscule at best, uh, they had a disproportionate public influence simply because many of them became educators uh, a notable number became uh, newspaper writers or editors, uh, and then you had a number who were uh, elected to the national legislature, including Nemoto Show. I mean, as many visitors to Tokyo today would note, there's smoking all over the place. Yes, and well, the Meiji period did see a very significant uptick in smoking within Japan. 
Uh, I mean, smoking t tobacco uh, consumption dated dates back to the late 16th century uh, when tobacco was first introduced, and we don't know exactly when or by whom. Um, but during the Tokugawa period, the smoking was was essentially uh, tobacco leaves were essentially consumed through uh, Japanese style pipes that a very small bowl and a long wooden um, uh, kind of stem. But with the opening of Japan, thanks to the unequal treaties, cigarettes became one of the uh, most important of imports. And Westerners imported cigarettes both for consumption among themselves, but then also eventually for sale uh, to Japanese. And it didn't take long into the Meiji period before there were hundreds and hundreds of different uh, Japanese uh, enterprise. I don't want to say enterprises. That's that's too implies too too big a. a a business entity, but there were uh, hundreds and hundreds, um, and by the late Meiji period, thousands and thousands of um, businesses, big and small, that were involved in the production of cigarettes, whether handmade or or rolled. Uh, so you had this significant ex expansion in consumption itself, and an expansion that was not limited. And this was true during the the Tokugawa period. Uh, consumption of tobacco that was not limited to a particular socioeconomic class or a particular gender or age group. And one of the concerns with the WCTU was simply how prevalent smoking was and how public smoking was during the Tokugawa period, or excuse me, during the, the Meiji period. Uh, in an odd little twist of fate, uh, the founder or first president of the WCTU, Yajima Kajiko, herself used to smoke out of a Japanese style pipe. And uh, one day she left her pipe. She was uh, working at a Christian uh, girls' school. She left her pipe on the tatami floor, caused a fire, not with damage uh, very extensive, but uh, apparently scared her enough that she gave up smoking at that point and um, added uh, anti-smoking uh, to her own agenda program. And speaking of that, it reminds me of these kind of two iconic images that I have of, of smoking in Japan. And, and so the first one being during the Meiji period, you get this kind of the the Meiji elite gentleman, right? He's got his bowler hat, his his pocket watch, and his cigar or cigarette. And so on the one hand, one question is, what explains this rapid adoption of cigarettes amongst men? Is it the the kind of allure of Western things and the cigarette is seen as another type of uh, Western accoutrement that you would that, that you would use to show how civilized you were. But then the second image is all of these pictures of women smoking in the Taisho period. And and that almost comes to be seen as somewhat of a, a sign of social decline, doesn't it? As, you know, the women are being corrupted by smoking. So there's this very, is that the result of these moral suasion campaigns that kind of transition over time? Or what's happening to make the, these kind of culture of tobacco changing so much between the Meiji and Taisho period? If I could start with the second part of your question, women during the Taisho period, I would say that the, the smoking by women became so lumped together with the modern girl. Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not smoking among MOGA or the, the modern girl was all that prevalent, I think is something that remains to be uh, fully ascertained. Uh, but I think at least for young women dressed in a particular kind of way, it was the whole package. Uh, and that for them, it wasn't just, or for public perception, it wasn't just the smoking among these young women that was problematic. But I would say that it's hard to gauge the extent to which these moral suasion campaigns, particularly that against smoking, had much success. Uh, I mean, certainly among young people, 
the fact that the diet passed this bill, it went into effect in, in 1900 to ban smoking by those under the age of 20, a bill that included penalties for parental, those with parental authority who failed to prevent young people from smoking with, with penalties or fines for those who were known to have sold tobacco or some kind of smoking paraphernalia to youth. Uh, that certainly was something that became very, the, the law itself became fairly widely known. Though implementation or uh, enforcement of the law remained something that was very difficult to fully implement. Uh, but that had a lot to do with concern about young people and again, their, their, their intellectual capabilities and their military strength, uh, their dexterity in the workforce if they had been smoking. And to make a leap from that to uh, the, the negative perception of, of women unmarried, dressed in a Western style, smoking in the, in the Taisho period, uh, there were other things going on. I, I would hesitate to suggest too much of an impact as a result of Meiji period anti-smoking campaigns, because many people did consider the WCTU to be such a fringe organization and too puritanical to have that kind of effect. To go back to your the first part of your question about uh, the reference to the image of the Meiji elite smoking, uh, yes, I think the, your, your mention of the association between uh, appearing civilized and enlightened, the Bumei Kaika agenda of, of really the 1870s uh, with a cigarette, that was definitely part of, I think, the appeal of smoking a cigarette. Much like drinking a glass of champagne, French champagne, um, there's a, a, a great cartoon that appeared in, uh, I think it was Puck, uh, the Yokohama publication in the early 1870s showing a uh, a gentleman dressed up as a samurai standing up next to a bar drinking what appears to be a glass of champagne with the bubble saying something along the lines of ah, civilization. Um, <laughs> yeah, the appeal of cigarettes was definitely there. Uh, and this was true, I would say, especially for the cigarettes that um, one of the three biggest manufacturers produced. This was a company called Mirai Brothers that had been founded in, in Kyoto uh, in 1894. It received a huge infusion of cash from the American Tobacco Company in 1899, uh, and it became then this Mirai Brothers Company Limited as a joint venture between American Tobacco and the Mirai Brothers from 1899 until 1904 when the government imposed or created an, an all-out monopoly on, on all tobacco production and sales and whatnot within Japan and eliminated or ended the period of private uh, tobacco production in Japan. Uh, Mirai, even before the merger, imported extensively uh, tobacco from Virginia and North Carolina uh, and tried to produce a flavoring in the cigarettes that was very much like uh, the flavoring of cigarettes that to uh, American tobacco itself had been importing at that particular time. Um, so yes, I think you have that, the, the cachet of smoking. But what I would add to it is you had this tradition of smoking from the Tokugawa period, and it was a social activity of sitting around a kotatsu with the, the burner and, and the cigarettes, and, or rather the, uh, the pipes themselves. So there was a, a taste for tobacco. And the appeal of cigarettes was simply the ease of lighting up because it's much easier to just pull the cigarette out of the package uh, and, and strike the match and light it up as opposed to having to go through the process of filling the bowl and lighting it and all of that. I was just recalling that scene in, at the end of Osaka Elegy, uh, mm -hmm. Mizuguchi's film from what, 36? Uh, where at the very end, she crumples up a pack of cigarettes and throws it off Shinsai Bashi. It talks yeah. about how I'm the stray dog who's completely lost my way. Doctor, <laughs> is, is there any way that you can cure this? Ah, so, wow, even I can't tell you that. 
But yeah, the, the kind of conflation of, of smoking with the fallen woman by the Taisho period is, is astounding. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me, and I always tell my students never to use the word interesting because it lacks any in that and analytical <laughs> weight to right. it, but uh, is that for the WCTU, it's, and I, I'll focus specifically on the WCTU, it's anti-smoking campaigns during the Meiji period were for large, in, in large part, ungendered. They, they were more interested in trying to prevent smoking by youth than they were specifically by women. And they did make connections, and, and Neimoto did as well, particularly in the uh, proposal that he wrote that was submitted to the diet, talked about the impact of smoking on, on the health and the strength and of young people. For Neimoto, he, his focus was a bit more on men, specifically looking at the future populations of soldiers. For the WCTU, it was really more just youth. And one of the reasons that the WCTU targeted youth for its anti, some of its anti-smoking and anti-drinking campaigns was not only a belief in the need to create this morally upstanding future generation, but some members also believed in the power of youth to sway the opinion of adults. Uh, kind of like the words, you know, there's a saying and I'm blanking on what it is, but basically, like, uh, you know, out of, the, out of a babe's mouth kind of thing. Um, thinking that if a youth, a young person, even somebody at the age of seven or eight, uh, could convince a parent not to smoke, maybe the child should have more of an impact in so changing a parent's behavior than uh, a woman from the WCTU standing on a street corner handing out an anti, uh, anti-smoking pamphlet. So there was also a strategic use, uh, particularly with the anti-smoking campaign of going after youth. Uh, and one of the ways in which the WCTU did that, they had these uh, these uh, temperance speech recitation contests uh, with uh, young people who then either wrote their own speech or pre- uh, presented something that someone else had written uh, to audiences of parents. And they, WCTU gave out prizes for the best speeches. Uh, and some of them were then published in youth periodicals. Again, using youth as a... Uh, as an avenue for carrying out larger social reform or something that WCT recognized had potential benefit. So I also wanted to talk to you about your classroom teaching. Uh, so, uh, Wayne State, what are some of the classes you teach? And in those classes, how do you approach the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji period more broadly? I teach one introductory level course on modern East Asian history in which we basically cover 300 years of Chinese, Japanese, and Korean history. Uh, and in that class, given that we have 14 weeks and I've got essentially two hours of class time every week, the Meiji Restoration basically gets a day, maybe two. Uh, and you know, the unfortunate part of that, just because of the class structure uh, and the purpose of the class itself, is that the Meiji Restoration then really is much more a top-down kind of presentation. And I wish I could figure out a way to move beyond that, other than the handful of primary documents that I have students read. Uh, and there's a really fo- a focus then on what are the what's the big story? What are the uh, major developments, the major reforms, what did Japan look like in 1912 as, a, as compared to 1868? Um, for upper level classes that involve the Meiji Restoration, uh, I teach a uh, 5,000 level, which is the highest, uh, essentially the highest level for undergraduates. Graduate students can also enroll it. Um, course on history of modern Japan. 
And then I also teach a course at the same level on um, gender in modern East Asia. And we do spend some time talking about uh, the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji period in that for both of those classes, but even more so the one that focuses specifically on modern Japanese history. I try to provide one way of thinking of it is, is a top down as well as a bottom up perspective. So we look at the major developments, the reforms of the early 1870s, uh, the construction of a system of compulsory education and conscript army. We talk about the Charter Oath and then the eventual uh, morphing into uh, the Constitution, the creation of the National Assembly, as well as prefectural assemblies. A lot of the social reforms, whatnot, uh, elimination of the classes as they had existed during the Tokugawa period. So I try to provide students with that kind of top down kind of big picture. Uh, and then I also uh, do a lot to focus on the bottom up on the ways in which people actually, people on the street, average people, experienced the Meiji period, experienced the upheaval of the reforms that came about, experienced industrialization and the opening of the textile factories. Uh, and in connection with then, how was the Meiji period actually lived by individual people? Uh, I focus as well on, or try to really expose students to um, how the people contributed themselves how they tried to impact the nature of their own lives and in the process then uh, construct for themselves a position within the Meiji period, uh, a definition of citizenship that was not always uh, in unison with the state's definition. And as part of that, looking uh, at the ground up, we have then the role of reformers. We have the role of um, women in particular. Uh, that's a, something that I, I emphasize. Uh, we have a look at Saigo and the Satsuma Rebellion. We have a look at the movement for freedom and, and, and popular rights. Um, we also look at environmental activism. Uh, we look at the downside of women working in the factory mills. Uh, every once in a while, I will assign uh, the soil uh, novel from, I believe, 1910 that very much shows the ways in which for a tenant farmer in the Kanto Plain, uh, the big reforms, the top down, we can look at those, but those don't actually really reflect how the Meiji period was lived by the vast majority of Japanese. In your lower division class, you, you mentioned that you uh, are doing Japan, Korea, and China, and so the, the major restoration gets one day. Are you putting that right. in this kind of conversation with political reforms in China or Korea? And and in in that case, you know, is this is the major restoration maybe one? moment in a in a age of revolutions in East Asia? Yes, uh, to both of those questions. Uh, so one of the things that the survey class uh, very much focuses on is a comparative analysis of, and it works particularly well then in uh, the 19th century, a comparative analysis of what actually happened in these countries, uh, the ways in which they responded to Western imperialism, Western encroachment, uh, why they responded as, how, as they did, uh, and why Japan moved to, to modernize so, so much more quickly than China and Korea did. Uh, and in that sense, I would say the Meiji Restoration, uh, one of your questions before had been uh, the importance of, of the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji period in terms of global history. Uh, and as I'm sure others have, have talked about, uh, Japan became this, this model for development otherwise in ways both positive and negative, uh, but more so often than not, as I talked to my students about, Japan was this uh, this country that first Western, first non-Western country 
to successfully modernize, to successfully carry out an industrial revolution, to become an imperial power. And so why did that happen? Uh, and so in, again, in the survey, we talk about why Japan was so positioned, say, by the end of the Meiji period, whereas by that exact same point, Korea had become a Japanese colony uh, and China was in the midst of or, or had just gone through uh, the 1911 revolution, was soon to fall under the sway of, of warlords and disintegrate. Can we think of the date 1868 as a, a very meaningful moment of break or, or is it maybe in hindsight, not such a point of rupture, but more of a moment of continuity? I would say both. Uh, it depends on what perspective angle you're actually taking. But I would say in, in other respects, and maybe most specifically in terms of women's role within Japan, I think we could say that it was a bit more of a rupture. Now, we, we can date in some respects a shift in perception about women to the arrival of the first missionaries after the signing of the Unequal Treaties. We can go back to 1859 and, and think of those first Protestants who brought with them to Japan this very strong sense that the, the status of women, the position of women in, in society was a big marker of, of a society's level of civilization and, and, and the extent of enlightenment that had gone on within the country. Um, and so we can go a little bit before, but I think it really was after 1868 uh, with an increase in the number of missionaries and even more acknowledgement among Japanese of at least this Western marker for gauging Japan's development. Uh, as then something that, that really set in motion a conversation about women's roles, women's rights, women's status. And we see that most specifically with the creation of the Meiji Six Society in 1873 uh, and the Meiji Six, the, the periodical uh, that this society put forth and a number of different articles in that, even though it was a very short-lived periodical, that talks specifically about women and women's place and women's roles. And so I think, again, if we look at women's place, 1868, a little bit beyond, is more of a point of departure. There were new opportunities that women had, that they both were presented with and that they grabbed, that allowed to a new kind of, or a different kind of, I don't want to say a new kind of, because I don't want to give the impression that women during the Tokugawa period were not engaged, were not active, did not have agency, because clearly there's a lot of research that, that's been done even within the last 10 years that paints a very different picture of women during the Tokugawa period that had long been presumed based on such texts as on a daigaku or, or greater learning for women. Um, but I think the, the nature of women's activism and the, the kinds of roles that they could play very much changed after 1868. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.